welcome to In Search of the Crystal Skull, an epic adventure into the realms of mediocrity. My name is Aaron. My name is Patricia. And uh, we are going to be finishing off uh, Hidden Gems Month, uh, unfortunately, which is something I consider probably Jack Black's worst performance. Ooh, that's going to be harsh to say, considering that the stuff that we have seen Jack Black in with the Kung Fu Panda movies and, you know, uh, various other movies that he's known for, such as Shallow Hell and School of Rock. You think this is his worst performance? Um, well, to be honest with you, I actually kind of like School of Rock. It's kind of a guilty pleasure for me, really. But, uh, you know, uh, but really, this movie that we're going to talk about, I mean, uh, out of all the Jack Black things I've seen, you know, this uh, this rubs me the wrong way. I've got to be honest with everybody. So. Okay. Okay, so uh, shall we rewind to uh, our film that we're going to talk about? All right, let's do so. Here we go. So, Be Kind Rewind is a 2008 comedy film written and directed by uh, Michael Grondy, uh, also starring Jack Black, uh, Moss Def, uh, Melanie Diaz, uh, Danny Glover, Maya Farrow, and the singer Z Weaver. Uh, the film was appeared in uh, January 20th in uh, 2008 at the 2008 Sundance Film Festival. It was later shown at the Berlin Film Festival and opened in uh, February 22nd in 2008 in the United Kingdom and in North America. So, um, I think one thing we should probably address before, obviously, you know, going right into the into the film itself is that this did inspire a lot of people in uh, many ways and uh, also probably ins we I also came out and commented that it uh, may have inspired also a particular sketch on the Amanda show as well I don't know about you Patricia what do you think of like you know the whole setup of like our, our movie Okay, so I would say that the premise is actually pretty interesting uh, it's a pretty typical story about you know, the people who are trying to save the neighborhood or trying to save the business. So this movie came out in 2008 and the it was around the time in which when VHS tapes were out and DVDs were in, even though that uh, we would have not known about the power that Netflix would be coming in in about a few years later, where it pretty much just replaced DVDs with streaming services. So it goes back into a time in which when when DVDs were the actual format where people would be watching movies and TV shows and nobody was renting VHSs anymore. I think the last VHS tape that I can recall that I had personally purchased was the Finding Nemo VHS. And that was like around the early 2000s. After that, I, I replaced it with DVDs immediately. And we actually got rid of all of our VHS tapes and replaced it with DVDs. And, and then a little bit later on, uh, we just went over to streaming services and we stopped buying DVDs altogether. So yeah, it definitely goes back into a time in which when um, people were still using like the mom and pop VHS stores to rent off movies so that they can be able to watch it for a day and then they would return it. It's, it's like a, a little bit smaller than your blockbusters or your Hollywood video. So it definitely does take you back into that time period. And also it goes into more of a direction where it focuses on like indie filming where, you know, people use anything that they had so that they can be able to film something. They had props, they had used the same actors over and over again. And, uh, you know, a lot of people may find that to be quite appealing and charming, especially for those who are film majors and want to be able to uh, start their own um, industry or even have their own career in films. I mean, today it's a lot easier. Like, you have a camera on your phone and um, you can be able to, like, raise money with crowdfunding campaigns so you can be able to buy the props that you need and you know if you have access to things like studios um then you can be able to make a lot of things i mean youtubers have been able to you know go above and beyond in fact this came out two years after youtube i'm surprised that they 
there was never any mention of YouTube whatsoever. Uh, especially with, you know, people such as the angry video game nerd and the nostalgia critic becoming really high in terms of our entertainment. Well, but, I just wanted to ask you about that, because, like, what time period does this actually take place in? Uh, so yeah, but, I mean, if, if the movie came out in 2008, we, uh, we can assume that the mo that the, the that this film takes place around 2008. Yeah, it just, it feel, it just feels kind of dated in a way. Like, I thought uh, that uh, this movie was taking place, like, you know, um, it has kind of like a bit of a weird, like, 90s, 2000-y feel. Like, you know, it doesn't really feel like it. It just kind of feels like it's kind of, this is probably like between, you know, 1999 to 2001 in some strange way. Like, you know, just yeah, like... Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it does kind of feel that way, where you have, like, the new DVD store, which looks akin to, like, Blockbuster, and then you have the old VHS store, which looks like your typical mom-and-pop rental place, like, around uh, the neighborhood, where you would go to to rent for a dollar, and... Yeah, it definitely does not feel like this movie takes place in 2008. There's no mention about... Um, social media, there's no MySpace reference, there's no uh, references to YouTube and content creators. It, it, I mean, it definitely does feel like something that came out in the early 2000s as opposed to the late 2000s. So there's that. And also the fact that the characters are a bit sketchy. Like, I, I guess we could talk about Jack Black's character. So he plays a character named Jerry McLean, and he's a conspiracy theorist. A really paranoid conspiracy theorist where he thinks about like you know the government is after him and he needs to take down the man and all that kind of stuff i mean the first thing that we see in the movie is that you know he tries to go to a power plant and tries to demolish it because of some reason i don't we, i don't even know what the explanation of it is it's something i was gonna to do say because like uh, this uh, the, I, I do not like this character i i just don't i just think uh, he comes across as like uh, extremely unlikable and uh, it's just, it's, uh, you know, he just becomes, uh, he just basically is the, uh, he causes all the problems of the movie, basically. And, uh, you know, it's like, I, I get, like, if, uh, you know, if he had inadvertently, like, uh, I mean, maybe, uh, to be fair, he did inadvertently, like, erase all the tapes and everything like that. But uh, I just think that, you know, it was, the problem is it was a problem of his own making and everything. And, like, you know, there was just, there's nothing to kind of sympathize with him. If anything, no, not it? really. No, I mean he—he's not—he's not like Dale Gribble, in which, like, yes, he's a conspiracy nut, but there's a lot of appealing moments to him that make him a somewhat likable character. I mean, there's a lot of things in Dale Gribble that you would not like. He's a conspiracy theorist. He talks about how the government is after us. He's the president of a gun club. And he's not exactly, you know, he kind of manipulates Hank, Bill, and Boomhauer a lot to the point in which he sometimes even betrays them. This is a character that you would immediately not like. But yeah. there's something about him that makes him appealing, such as the fact that he's a very devoted uh, husband and father, even though that his wife has constantly cheated on him for 13 years and his son is not even his biological son. And also, he tries to find ways to be able to solve his issues without going all paranoid, and he's able to come on top of the end. So that character is an example of a conspiracy theorist nut done well, while... This character, on the other hand, is not. You're right. He is the one responsible for causing all the problems in the first place. Because he went to the power plant and he got himself electrocuted, he was the one who inadvertently erased all the tapes from the VHS uh, rental store. And so that's when they came up with the idea of filming everything. They decided to Swede all of the tapes. They start off with Ghostbusters and then they filmed themselves doing it. And 
and they come out with a 20 minute product. And so then um, very similar to when we were talking about UHF, where everybody is just loving the idea of just this crude, rough look of people just being passionate about what they do so that they decide that they want to be able to have all of the films sweeted. So the next one is Rush Hour 2, which out of all the films, really, Rush Hour 2, I mean, it's not even as good as the first movie, but I get it. Wasn't it the movie that was out at the time? I think. Yes, uh, it was because yeah. Rush Hour Three was Rush Hour Three wasn't out yet. So yeah, I, I guess I could see that. And then uh, you know they did a lot of other films like uh, 2001, uh, you know, uh, Space Odyssey, and then they did uh, Driving Miss Daisy, and uh, they did a lot of other movies. So um, yeah, th- they were able to really resonate with an audience for them to rent all of these tapes. Uh, of just a bunch of guys, and then later on, um, m- you know, Miss Fallowitz decides to come along, and she wants to help out as well, and she's just as passionate as the other guys are. And then, you know, we have this whole other subplot about uh, Denny Glover's character, Mr. Fletcher, who realizes that his um, business is not doing very well. I mean, he's been telling the story over to Mike. Uh, the guy who also runs the the business, um, you know, the VHS store, where he's telling him that Fats Waller was born in the same building where their VHS store is at. And so they want to be able to keep it as a national landmark. And so he's been telling uh, him this. And so th- there's this like this passion about wanting to save the neighborhood, wanting to save this particular building. Uh, while he is going out on quote-unquote vacation, in reality, he's eyeing the DVD store and jotting down, okay, this is what they do. Uh, I need to be able to do this to get my business going because I've been told over by um, you know, the, um, the real estate place that they're going to shut down the building and they're going to renovate the entire neighborhood to make it fresh and new because it's a run-down neighborhood with nothing there for people to go to. So, um, the one thing I, um, I mean, the one thing I is, is the neighborhood itself. Like, you know, they get everybody involved in the act, in uh, you know, obviously, do, you know, producing all these movies, and uh, then obviously, Mr. Fletcher comes back, and uh, then he says, "Oh, hang on a second, you can't, no, you can't just do all of this. It's like, uh, it's not the future. It's, uh, it's all these DVDs that we need to do." So, um, I mean, it, to me, like, uh, this must take place, like, I would say, at the very beginning of the millennium, at least, like, as you know, like, uh, I mean, when was DVDs like starting to be, like become popular at that point? Um, well, it's, technically, technically, DVDs did start at around 1995, but it was only around the t- early 2000s when it started to become a lot more mainstream, where they would have things released on VHS and DVD around uh, the early 2000s. And then, like, toward the late 2000s, VHS tapes weren't even done anymore. And then around the 2010s, that was when Blu-rays came along, and then nowadays we have streaming services. Yeah, so, I mean, like, uh, it seems to me that uh, the way that they're, they're, they're placing this movie seems to be kind of like, you know, at that, at that particular point. So, um, you know, obviously he's, he's on that, but uh, uh, then they come up with this, like, this uh, this plan of, like, just sticking, like, CDs to, like, you know, the boxes and saying, like, hey, this is, like, the new format. Or something yeah. like that, which I thought was kind of like, nah, like uh, that's just uh, that just sounds kind of dumb. But uh, yeah, it is kind of dumb. But considering that we don't know what time period this takes place in, like, I mean, we, I, I guess you know, when making this movie, I'm sure that um, Michael Gondry had no idea that um, the internet would take a major step up in terms of how we get our entertainment nowadays. Um, I'm sure that he would have had no idea about the massive impact of Netflix or YouTube would make 
So there's no mention of it whatsoever. And I think that that kind of hurts the film a little bit, considering of what year it came out in. Now, if it would have came out around 2005, I can completely understand this. But it came out in 2008, where we already had things like YouTube and Blip, Facebook, and um, we had Twitter, we had uh, others, uh, MySpace was still really popular, we had other social media outlets. So I, I guess maybe people can make the argument. It's like, oh, you know, they come from a very poor neighborhood and maybe they didn't have the money to, you know, have all of this technology, but which, okay, that's completely fair. So I think that, you know, it, it's an actual uh, lost opportunity that they never like tried to, you know, branch out any further than what they did. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to look at all the movies that they actually uh, they seem to have actually done. So um, it's uh, so, so they did Alone in the Dark, which was a 1982 oh, movie. Oh gosh, yes. Yeah, so, oh, oh, the oh, the other Alone in the Dark. The other okay. Alone in the Dark. No, no, not that one. Like, uh, oh, no, not the Uber Ball one. Good, good. Yeah, good. they did. Uh, I think they did well, like the Twilight Zone. They did House Party, and uh, so it looks to me like they um, the movies that they parodied in in, in there looks like it would have been like. Uh, Movies that would have been like recognized around about that time. So uh, okay, that, yeah, that's that true that. because if because Rush Hour Two came out in two thousand one, and I think that that was like the newest movie that they did parody. Mm-hmm. So um, they obviously got a lot of success from around the neighborhood, and to the point where basically they came up with all these crazy rules, or like saying that you know you need uh, um, you know uh, and it, it just gets like this uh, wild buzz around, like oh, hey, we can get to like you know watch movies that are actually made in the neighborhood, which uh, obviously seems to be a massive success for them. So uh, it gets to the point where a lot of people like are demanding like to uh, uh, rent movies and everything, and so they uh, take like um, you know suggestions like for what they want to just uh, have as a as a rented movie. And- and uh, then um, they actually go out and make the movies themselves. And uh, then, like uh, a couple of minutes later, they come up with it. Well, you know, like a day or two days later, they actually come back with the movie. So mm-hmm. um, it, obviously, it works in that. And so it gets wildly successful. But then all of a sudden, uh, the, uh, the the movie company lawyers come in and basically trash the entire thing. Yeah, which is very justified because they are violating major copyright claims. Like, you if you think that YouTube is, like, really strict when it comes to it, when it comes to, like, you know, fair use, which, you know, of course it is. I mean, imagine having to deal with the fact that you have just made an entire movie without giving proper credit to the people behind it. So they saying, okay, you owe billions of dollars to these copyright claims of all the different companies that you ripped off with these movies. And so they had to destroy them. And all the money that they made was, you know, was barely enough so that they can be able to save the building where Fats was born, which, by the way, it is revealed that no... Fats was never born in that particular area where they're at, which is in New Jersey, and he was never born in the building that the VHS store is at. For those who don't know, Fats Waller it was a very famous jazz pianist around the 1920s during the Harlem Renaissance, and um, he was born in New York. And he did perform a few times in New Jersey, but he never lived there. So, yeah, the whole thing was a complete lie. And I'm sure that jazz fans who knew about Fats Waller were like, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense in the story. But I'm sure that regular people who were just watching the movie had no idea who Fats Waller is because, I mean, he's not um, hes not a Louis Armstrong. He's not an Ella Fitzgerald. He's definitely like one of the more underground jazz musicians during that time period. So 
yeah, basically they decide that the only way that they can be able to save the neighborhood and save the video store is that they made their own fake documentary about Fats Waller called Fats Waller Was Born Here. And so they get the neighbor, um, the neighborhood to come together. They film everything. They use crude effects. They tell this elaborate story about how he used to perform you know, these uh, concerts in like New York City and he would travel across the country and do so. And a lot of people are really invested in it. And, you know, the whole neighborhood comes together and they start watching it and they feel really proud of all the work that they've done. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's the funny thing about this. It's a bit anticlimactic as well, like, uh, because like in the Muppets movie, like uh, they don't actually actually get to the goal. So they end up kind of like, it's kind of like... uh, um, insinuated that uh, you know they had this like one last hurrah, and then after that the neighborhood got turned down. But uh... yeah, that's exactly what happened. You know, unlike UHF and unlike the 2011 Muppets movie, in which they don't accomplish their goal and the the whole thing gets shut down at the end. But they're able to have like this last moment where they're able to just sit down and watch the movie that they made together and they all cheer triumphantly of all the work they've done. And then the movie just ends there knowing that Mr. Fletcher had decided to sell off the building and it's going to be converted into something else and he's just going to move somewhere else and everybody's just going to be doing who knows what and yeah they don't win at the end they lose you know uh corp- massive corporation takes over which i mean yes it's realistic and, and it's pretty inevitable considering on the status that they're at which um you know many people would be like at least you know it's more realistic but yeah it is kind of an anticlimactic ending when you think about it yeah it's just it was um again it's just it was um it, it was a, it was a, it was an experience that's all I can really say about uh, Be Kind Rewind. And, uh, you know, like, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, like, uh, I don't really like, you know, Most Def's, um, you know, like, a you know, downbeat, you know, performance in this as well. Like, I mean, you know, you basically got, like, I thought I'd get, like, a chuckle out of it, at least in some places, but not really. Like, you know, like... Yeah, uh, I mean, I never really see Moss Def as, like, an actor. I, I mostly associate him with his hip-hop music. Yeah, uh, so, so uh, I mean, so that just kind of, like, uh, was... Um, not really what I was expecting, really, and uh, so um, and then there's obviously I was hoping that Jack Black was going to get me through this movie, but if anything, he was just he was more annoying than he was like you know just uh, you know entertaining in this movie. I don't know if that's because that's just the way that he was told to act or anything like that, or just it's just like a, I just feel like he, he went through the movie and didn't have like all that many redeeming qualities. Really? Yeah, I mean, it does it does play off like your stereotypical conspiracy nut. It's like, oh, I'm crazy. Oh, the government's doing this. Oh, you know, I'm this horrible person, but I have justified reasons, even though that they're kind of nonsensical. Yeah, it, it does play off pretty badly. And I, yeah, I, I would say that it's one of the worst performances that I have seen with Jack Black. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean... Not much else really to discuss. Like uh, it was, um, it, it was, uh, yeah, <laughs> it was something. That, I'll tell you what. Actually, one thing I think I will end with, and that is that uh, um, at least it did aspire to like you know the uh, the Swedish uh, craze on YouTube, and uh, it did you know make people like wanted to like uh, take a take a video camera and like you know film their own like versions of movies and that. So like uh, I guess you could say it did inspire people to like you know. Uh, do their own like cheaply made movies and stuff like that because of the way like you know it was it was done. So I guess that's one good thing about it. But besides that, um, nah, I just think that uh, I don't think Be Kind Rewind will be a movie I'll be revisiting anytime soon. I don't think. 
Mm. Yeah, let's see what the critics have to say about this. So um, Troy Patterson from Spin says, Gondry connects the guy's toil and glee with a kind of old-time neighborhood hominess that's dying away and a jazz creative joy that never will. And um, uh, Richard Krause says, It's Achilles' heel is the difficulty Gondry has in switching from magical realism back to the more earthbound aspects of the story. Still, the movie has a gentle, heartfelt vibe that is hard to resist, especially if you are a movie fan. So, yeah, for those who don't know, uh, Michael Gondry uh, is known for doing a lot of really crazy out there indie films. You may know him for his work in Eternal Spotlight of um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with Jim Carrey, where he's kind of like going in and out of his own personal mindset. He's also known for doing a lot of out there music videos as well, from Bjork to Daft Punk. So, yeah, he's a bit of a out there director. And so I guess maybe they thought that, you know, since he's known for being a little bit more avant-garde, him trying to be more grounded just didn't exactly gel very well with a lot of these critics because um, a lot of them do give the praise for like going back to a simpler time with like the rough neighborhood and the whole appeal of like indie movies. But everything else is not praised in the slightest. Like uh, Peter Bradshaw from The Guardian says, Hollywood showbiz is about the now and the new. So there's something subversive about Gondry pitching his tent in the waste ground of obsolete uh obsolence behind gleaming edifice in modernity and it could work as a short film but as a feature-length comedy it runs dry really quickly so yeah there's some things that some fan uh some critics liked about it and then there's some that didn't yeah so anyway what do we think so uh, i mean i've got to be honest uh, i would rate this film a five you know, like uh, out of ten, and uh, the reason I say that is because you know there is some charm to this movie, and uh, there is um, I like the idea of like you know everyone coming together to like do this movie. I thought the the the, the, fi the final act, you know, in, in the final third is uh, my favorite part of like the entire movie. I think you know when they all just come together and like do this whole thing for uh, you know a Fats Waller and uh, that, and I think that was uh, uh, pretty pretty cool in uh, in that. But uh, you know for the rest of the movie, I just felt like uh, you know I didn't really get in in invested in uh, you know Jack Black being this. A really nutty character. I didn't get really get invested in, uh, you know, Moss Def's performance. Uh, I didn't get invested in Mr. Fletcher's, you know, spying of the other DVD uh, store. You know, like, I just felt like, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I kind of felt a bit abstract at times, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I just felt like, you know, uh, I think the five is probably the best thing I can give it, really. So. Mm hmm. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely do agree as well. I, I think that with UHF, what made that movie work? The movie was able to work because it had really great characters. It was funny. And it had this triumphant moment where you got to see the people come together and being able to raise the money so that they can be able to save the studio. And you were rooting for that. And in this movie, it strips away the characters. The premise is not very unique. And also, um, just the fact that, you know... The, the ending was a bit of a climactic way of ending it off, which I understand is more realistic, but still it just, it just felt a little bit disappointing. I think that the parts that I really, really did enjoy about this movie were um, them trying to film um, the films that we were, you know, going over, like um, they were trying to do um, Ghostbusters and Rush Hour 2. They tried to do The Lion King, which <laughs> I thought was actually pretty funny. They tried to do 2001 um, Space Odyssey. They tried to do 
uh, all of these films. And it's very commendable that they were able to do it with such crude effects and creativity. And they were able to do this really sweet documentary about Fats Waller, even though that all of the information presented to them was false. So I'm glad that they were able to, you know, I think that as a movie fan, it's definitely has the love of it on its sleeve. I think that James Rolfe even mentioned it as like, according to him, his top five favorite movies when it comes to making movies, which... Um, I personally think that um, movies such as Ed Wood does it a much better job where you are able to root for Ed Wood, even though that he would become the worst movie director in all of um, Hollywood. I mean, I guess, you know, for some people who want to make the argument about like who is the worst movie director of all time, I'm not going to go into that. But yeah, I mean, I take it that, you know, for movie fans, especially for those who are just starting out and who have to use limited resources in order for them to get themselves started, um, I think it, it it does have a charm to it. But, you know, you can do a lot better nowadays with, like, green screen and cameras that we easily have access to on our phones and editing websites that you can get for just a few hundred dollars. So, you know, we already have a much more cleaner and more refined way of making movies, especially our own movies, because we know about copyright claims, especially if you're a YouTuber. So uh, it does go back into a much more simpler time in which we had none of that stuff. So I can understand how it appeals to those fans. But as for like everything else, it just falls apart. Mm hmm. So that ends our adventure into hidden gems. So stick around, and we will be announcing very soon what the next bunch of movies are going to be for the next month. So until then, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about next month because I know for a lot of people they're going to be excited about it. Okay. All right, everybody, take care. I'm bye for now. See you later.